0: Dear Prudence.
1: Dear Prudence. Dear Prudence. Dear Prudence. Dear Prudence. Dear, Prudence. Dear, Prudence.
0: Dear, Prudence. Dear Prudence. Do you think that I should contact him again? Help. Help. Hi. Thanks.
1: Thanks. Thank you. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Dear Prudence Show. Uh, We are in the studio today with uh, Anna Sale, who I'm really looking forward to introducing to you all later. Um, But before we get started, I wanted to give you some general advice, which is that if you are the parent of a minor, I advise you not to attempt to parent through the legal system by suing your child. Um, That's not a piece of advice I thought that I would have to give. On this show. But for those of you who have been uh, following the news out of Minnesota recently, you may be aware that there is a woman who is suing her 17 year old transgender daughter uh, who has been living independently of her mother, working two jobs, um, paying her own bills, uh, and generally taking care of herself. She's suing her daughter, who's 17, um, because she is receiving medical care for her transition. Um boy oh boy. Uh do I have some thoughts about the importance of physical autonomy? Uh, And the rights of people, even young people, even minors, to make decisions about their own bodies, Um, particularly if you have allowed your child to move out and get jobs and take care of themselves. And then all of a sudden, because they are making medical decisions for their own transition that you do not like, um, trying to stop them by uh, invoking the power of the state. Um, I advise you not to do that. I think that that is some bad parenting. Um, I think that that is deeply damaging. It's deeply worrying. It's deeply troubling. You know, the the outcome of this case could have really damaging um, long term effects for other trans and genderqueer youth um, for whom, uh, you know, medical privacy is so important um, when it comes to uh, People who are trans or genderqueer or gender minorities, uh, often uh, it is their families who um, provide the greatest uh, threat to their well-being. And so um, somebody who is able to uh, invoke the state and make those decisions for you or stop you from receiving the medical care that you need um, is deeply troubling, worrying, upsetting, frightening. Um, Don't do that. If you are thinking about doing it, stop um and uh, this is just a story that i find deeply troubling especially just in light of um this has not been a great year for uh, news about LGBT people. And uh, I just go back to uh, try to help other people. And if you can't do that, just uh, go for benign neglect. Um, trust that people are not making decisions about transitioning lightly um, and that they know what is best for themselves. And especially if you were willing to let them, uh, you know, begin the process of emancipation. Um, don't suddenly change your tune um, because you are a transphobic person. And like, yeah, I'm going to go out on a limb and say that's a transphobic thing to do. Like, there's that sort of whole like, oh, I don't really mind the transitioning. I just I think it's happening too fast. It's like, yeah, you do mind the transitioning, actually. Um, You want to stop it um, because you think that people don't know their own minds or their own bodies um, and you think that you know better uh, than somebody else does. And you don't. Um, And it is uh, deeply wrong and it is a violation of somebody's civil rights to try to stop them from transitioning if transitioning is what they need. So uh, that is my advice to all of you out there. Don't stop other people from transitioning. My guest today is Anna Sale, who is the host of the podcast Death, Sex and Money, uh, which I do recommend checking out if you haven't. She has wonderfully intimate conversations with all kinds of people about stuff that many of us aren't comfortable talking about. I just talked about something that I'm not especially comfortable or coherent about, so I can really relate to this script that my producer just wrote. (laughs) Hi, Anna. Hi. Welcome.
2: Thank you. How you doing? I'm good. I, I am a. I was listening very attentively because I'm the new parent of a minor. So, the advice: don't sue them as a parenting strategy.
1: Had, Boy, hadn't thought about my position on that yet. Yeah, no, and and her daughter is named as the defendant. Hmm. That's that's a rough place to be. Hmm. She is, of hmm. course, uh, misgendering her daughter right and left in the court documents, which um, is just again not a great parenting technique. Um and it's really sad. Yeah. How are your kids doing?
2: I have one. Okay. She is good. Yeah. She is rolling over and beginning to move around rooms by like scooching backwards. That's very exciting. It is. It's very cool to watch.
1: I've never seen a child scooch backwards into a room, but I have a feeling that it would be delightful. And I would enjoy it. It is.
2: Because <laughs> she doesn't really know that she's moving. She's just like moving her body, like so excited that she can move her core. And then all of a sudden she's six feet from where she started.
1: This is often how I feel in my own life. <laughs> um, I tried to pick as many questions as possible today that felt connected to, to death, sex, and money. Um Unfortunately, just no one ever wants to talk about any of those things. No. <laughs> they just don't have don't. any they issues. They have no relate. problems
2: related to death, sex, or money.
1: Those are, they're just all bad, aren't they? Yeah. Death and sex and money. Um, so I, I look forward to exploring deeply uncomfortable realms of the human psyche with you. Cool. Uh, and I want to get started. I'm actually really excited about this because it's another question about um, heterosexual marriage uh, and the role of, like, the male parent in uh, a wedding ceremony, which uh, listeners of the podcast might recall that easily the most uh, explosive fight ever had on this podcast was with um, a, a beloved guest um, who uh, the two of us could not agree on whether or not somebody should have their fiancé ask their father for permission. Mm. Um, and so I'm looking forward to round two <laughs> of just, like, heterosexual traditions. What are we going to do with them? What's right? What's wrong? Um So let's jump in. I'm going to go ahead and read the first letter. All right. I'm uh, getting ready to
2: respond passionately. All right.
1: The subject is I don't want to be given away. I'm so glad we're still asking ourselves this question. (laughs) Um, I'm not really glad at all. Dear Prudence, I'm getting married in the spring, and my dad has been talking for years about walking me down the aisle and giving me away. I hate the whole idea and the implied ownership and control behind it, and I don't want that in my wedding, but my parents have threatened not to attend at all because they'll be too quote-unquote devastated to enjoy the rest of the event if I skip this tradition. I want to call their bluff and tell them that while I hope they come, attending is their decision, but no one will be walking me down the aisle either way. My fiancé agrees that they're being ridiculous, but he thinks I should just do what they want to make things go smoothly. He has, however, agreed that they're my parents and that he'll support whatever I end up deciding to do. My parents are already upset that I refuse to have a church wedding because I've always wanted to get married outdoors and my fiancé and I live in the perfect place for us. They're upset that we aren't using traditional religious vows, that our wedding parties are of mixed gender, and that my fiancé and I have asked a close friend to marry us instead of a minister. Should I just let my parents win this fight for the sake of keeping the peace? I have some
2: thoughts. Hit me with them. Well, I think it's interesting to me how much kind of in the email we learned that their how much ground her parents have given hmm. that that they would prefer a church wedding that they are uncomfortable with non-traditional med- wedding parties that they would prefer to administer was involved and it was the giving away question where the ultimatum came in and i don't know my my first thought about this i've been married twice i've had two weddings Both times I was walked down the aisle by my mom and my dad, and even though the first marriage ended in divorce, those photos of me with my parents ending the passage of being part of that family being my family of origin and entering into a new family, which is what a marriage is, those photos of that moment are really precious to me. I did not think of it as these are my parents bringing me to the altar to give up their property to the man who was taking me. Of course, that is the history of this tradition. However, I think that there can be a way, if there's room for you, as you think about your wedding, to think about this is me honoring what I got from my family. From Maybe you ask both parents if if your mom doesn't want to be involved. But you could say, this is my way of honoring, you know, what you gave me as parents, and I want you to accompany me as I make this transition. And then they sit down, and then they watch you have the kind of ceremony that is your ceremony of choice. Um, I, you know... But if that feels so uncomfortable, like it is, it is a bridge too far, and that you will look at those pictures of your father walking you down the aisle as a, an incredible compromise of your values and your principles and that you're beginning the process of your married life not on your own terms,
1: then make the other choice. Anna, that's so reasonable. <laughs> Can't we fight? No, totally. I mean, my inclination on answers like this is always, like, get your hackles up. Fuck you. Don't say fuck you to your parents. This is not merited. Um, But just like, you know, don't have these kind of elaborate expectations of your child's marriage uh, and like get over it. Um, That said, I I think my advice tends to lean in that direction enough that I want to sometimes like make allowances for what would it look like if you didn't do that? So like I agree. I I don't think based on this letter that your father is thinking, ah, if I get to walk her down the aisle, then everyone will know. It was my choice that she married this person, and I will have the final say. Like, I don't—it doesn't sound like to me— and He's
2: collecting his dowry after the ceremony, yeah. <laughs> right.
1: It doesn't sound like to me that that's how your father sees it. It sounds like he's a little more old-fashioned, and he wants to feel like there's some sort of meaningful moment during the ceremony that acknowledges his relationship with you, the connection that the two of you have, um, which may or may not be a good one. Like, there's nothing in this letter that tells me, like— I don't like my parents, but there's also nothing that's like we're normally close, they're a little old fashioned. So I think part of what I would ask is like, you know, overall, like, would it be meaningful you for you to make your parents feel included, specifically your dad? Um, do you do you feel like you're close with them? Do you feel like they did a good job raising you or, or tried their best? Like, do you would you be willing to compromise because it would mean a lot to them? Um Clearly, my heart is not in this half of the answer. I'm, like, trying, man. I'm trying out here. I
2: mean, I think the thing that I—like, weddings are family occasions. Mm -hmm. They're celebrating the marriage of these two people who are in love and who are starting a new life together. But it's also a time to gather together. Like, I remember the question of, like, how how do I feel about grandma's China or something? Like, and I I, didn't—I didn't didn't really care about China, but I knew that it, like, was so important— that like she gave me a meaningful gift to her and that, that expressed like what she valued. Mm-hmm. And and I think that that's what that's what why wedding planning is so <laughs> stressful totally. because you are n- navigating so many different sets of values. Um, but in the end, I think that like if at the possibility of your parents not coming to your wedding, I would just if you're going to make that choice, I would just. Make sure you're really comfortable with it because that's not something you can undo. And for the rest of your marriage, hang on, it's that. not something
1: they can undo. She's not telling them don't come. They're saying she is saying, yeah, she was she's saying
2: you may come. Yeah. She's not saying don't come. Right. I, I do think but making the choice to say this is so important to me that, like, I'm willing to call your bluff on not coming to my wedding. Mm-hmm. Um that is something neither your parents nor you can undo. And I, I think that that's something, it's going to be a decision that's going to have a long, sure, long consequences.
1: Yeah, I think part of what gets my back up about this is this claim. If we don't get, if I don't get to walk you down the aisle, I'll be too devastated to watch you get married. Really? Really? You wouldn't derive any joy from watching your child, like, vow to honor and cherish the person she loves because she didn't want you to walk her down the aisle. It would just turn the sun to ashes in your eyes turn food into dust in your mouth you would just derive no joy it would be like casey at the bad no joy in mudville that day like fucking really (laughs) i just i i think you should try harder to find the joy in this ceremony parents of this letter writer i think if if it's this one thing if you think that they'll let it go after that consider saying, okay, I want you both to walk me down the aisle. But I also want you to feel really free to say, mom and dad, I love you so much. I don't want you to walk me down the aisle because I don't feel that I am being given away. If there's another way that we can kind of acknowledge and honor the job that both of you did raising me, I'd love to find a way that we can incorporate that in the ceremony, but I, I don't want to be given away, especially not by just my male parent. Like, that's actually not how I see this going down. That's not how I see this. And I think that's a pretty, like, good compromise. And if they're like, nope, it's got to be your dad walks you, like, past some pews or nothing, then I, I think that that's kind of their choice um, to to. Be a little unreasonable, and I don't think that you should feel super guilty about um, not accommodating them. I just feel like they should try a little harder to find some joy in this day. So, we're fighting a little bit. We're fighting a little bit. We're fighting a little (laughs) bit. But you've also gotten married, uh, and and I do always want to take into account that, like, weddings are about more than just a couple in question, and there's a reason that people don't just, like, get married, like in 40 seconds you know in a hallway um like they invite friends and loved ones partly because they want to include like their community and that is true and sometimes your community wants stuff that's a little different from you and you do have to compromise yeah (laughs) this is casey's cracking up because she could tell that i'm just like "Oh, oh live in the desert talk to no one all right. I really want you to read this next one because this is a really thoughtful question. And this is a hard one. This is tough. This is really tough. And, and I want to try to give this person the best possible advice. Okay. The subject of this is
2: sad to start. Butter over too much bread. I have a question about support. I tend to have one-on-one friendships. I'm not really part of a friendship group as such. This suits me just fine. However, three of my closest friends have recently been hit with very difficult times. One friend's mother died suddenly. Another is unemployed and has been battling depression for over a year. I've been a fairly active support to them, and it hasn't felt like a give. It's been something I'm happy to do. Prudy, now the only other very close friend I have is going through a horrible breakup. She's also had depression and, she na- and is now at her very lowest ebb. She's never hurt herself before, but it seems like a real danger. I've advocated therapy and a psychiatrist who can relook at her medication, and she's working on both of those options. Despite this, I'm finding it difficult to be as empathetic as I should be. We live close to each other, and she doesn't have much of an alternative support system on this side of town. I know it's not healthy for me to overextend, especially when my capacity for empathy is stretched, but it's very difficult to draw boundaries with an old friend who is suicidal and just wants someone to watch a movie with. Any advice on balancing self-care with being a good
1: friend? <sighs> I want to hug everyone involved in this letter. These are These are always tough questions where I think everyone's doing their best. And it's still hard. And there's no one person or one act that you can kind of point to and say, like, here's the problem – Here's where to draw a really good boundary. Do you feel like you have a sense reading through that? Like, is there something that you really want this person to think about or prioritize or bear in mind as they try to make decisions? I think that the the sentence that stuck out
2: to me is, I'm finding it difficult to be as empathetic as I should be. Because mm. that, I think, brings suggests that you have a lot of judgment around how you are supposed to serve and show up for people. Mm. And if you're feeling tired, you feel guilty. You are allowed to feel tired, when you are supporting three people who are each in really difficult times who you love and who are asking you to help carry that for them. Carrying that takes work um, and is probably stressful for you as well. It sounds like you need a movie night by yourself (laughs) in a movie theater, maybe with like Two bags of trail mix and fizzy water. That's what I do when I need self-care. I go to double features. Because um, you're all alone and you get to, like, just have a little space. Mm-hmm. Um, I I have the one-on-one friendships, too. And it's, like, really intense and it's great. And you are there for each other in moments of crisis. But, man, it's all happening right now for you. And um, I also wonder if you can sort of tell some of the other friends... You know, who've been going through stuff for a little longer. What's going on and say, you know, I might be unavailable because I this other friend is in really is in a crisis moment. Um, but can we can we schedule a time to hang out sometime next month or something like that? Right. Like it's like it's it's rebalancing the demands on you.
1: Right, because it might not be appropriate for her to share this with her friend who's currently suicidal. Um, Because, you know, it's just a level of like, what can she manage right now? And she's kind of in triage mode right now. But to look to other friendships where people might have passed a point of crisis or, or might be able to help you a little bit to just say, I'm actually feeling really tired right now. I'm going through a lot with a really dear friend and it's it's really, um, it, it, it's taking a lot of emotional and physical energy and I'm just feeling kind of down. Like, even just to name it to other people, um, I think, like, medical professionals are going to be what helps her with suicidal ideation. Um, obviously, like, you can be there for her as a friend as well, but this is not something that can be treated by a lot of movie nights. Right. Um, so to bear in mind, like, if she asks you to spend some time together and you need to say no, you're not abandoning her. Um, you, you are not resigning her to total solitude and depression. Um, you are allowed to occasionally say, I can't make it that night. Or I actually am like, I already have plans, um, to, to sometimes to say, no, that that is okay. Um, and, and I understand, I, at least I imagine what would be hard is feeling like, I want to acknowledge that this takes something out of me, but I don't want this person to feel like a burden. Uh, because she's not a burden. She's your friend who's going something really hard. But sometimes acknowledging that something takes something out of you, um, it feels like, oh, I couldn't say that. Um, and you don't necessarily have to say it to her, um, again, because I, I really don't want you to make her feel like she can't come to you or that, that you resent her for having needs. Um, but it, it is okay, as you said, to, to be wiped out and to say, like, I need to think through this week. Like, what do I need in order to take h- care of myself? Is that, like, more sleep? Um, Is that taking a walk? Is that calling another friend and like venting to them about what's hard in my life? Um, You know, is that fill in the blank with something that you feel that you need and to like pursue that actively, I think, is, is, is important. I also think maybe just
2: giving yourself a few minutes to think about making room for joy in your life, because I imagine sometimes with close friendships, when you when when your friends are having a difficult time it's hard for you to like be open about things that are going well for you mm. um so i think like how to find little pockets of ways to to have a space where you can be grateful for the things that are going well in your life so you can recharge with that kind of positive energy
1: yep yep and i think to just remember that like you can and should be there for your friend but also to remember you cannot single-handedly um Solve her depression. You cannot, uh, you know. There's no. Um, it, it's not something where you must say yes to everything that she wants. It doesn't sound like she's trying to take advantage of you. I, I'm not meaning to suggest that. Just there might be a feeling of, until she is no longer suicidal, I must say yes whenever she asks to spend time together, um, because otherwise I might be in some way abandoning her. And I would just say, if that's something that you're feeling at all, I don't believe that that's the case. Um, you you should. And and ought to um, decide whether or not you are up for a movie night. And if you're not, you can still say, like, how's it going? How are you today? I really care about you. Let's get together next week or in a couple of days. Like, um, to to not say yes to everything, but to still be available, I think, is a possibility for you.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And just, you're going through a hard time. Your friends are going through a hard time, and that means you're going through a hard time. So give yourself... Just tell yourself that when you feel drained. Yep. Yep. It will pass.
1: Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I think that you will all find um, that these are not situations that last forever. Um, As hard as that can be to feel at the moment. Um, I love this next letter because the pun that they put into the subject line is outrageous. Um, It's – a lot of times people will write to me with acronyms that I do not understand – like, I can get F-I-L for father-in-law, but there's other ones that I have to, like, look up, and I just have no idea what they mean. Um, but this is about a father-in-law, and this is not so wonder Phil, like, F-I-L mm. father-in-law. You guys get it. You you can, you can pick up what I'm putting down. Weekends. So, boy, that is just not a joke I would have understood 10 years ago. <laughs> um. <clears throat> so here we go. <clears throat> My mother-in-law passed away over a year ago, leaving behind my father-in-law. Since then, my husband and I have played host to my father-in-law almost every single weekend. While I love my father-in-law and get along with him well, in fact, maybe better than my husband does, I still resent having to sacrifice my weekends, my time with our young children, and every Saturday and Sunday, he's over all day. My husband and I both work full-time and away from home, and our weekends are precious, Whenever I bring this up to my husband, his response is, his wife is dead. What am I supposed to do? To cap it off, my husband doesn't want to see his father this often. My father-in-law and my husband don't even get along most of the time, and visits are often rife with passive-aggressive arguments and put my husband in a sour mood. What can I say to get through to him? Mm. I got to say, I love your husband because (laughs) his strategy is just, well, I don't like my father. We fight all the time. But his wife is dead, so I'm legally obligated to spend every weekend with him for the rest of his life. Uh, but I will in no way make any, like, real-time attempt to improve our relationship. Uh, I just owe him a grudge-filled weekend every week until one of us dies. And I don't care that you're. it's making you unhappy. Yeah. No, this is just, everyone knows this is how it works. When your mom dies, uh, you have to make your dad your, like, part-time roommate. <laughs> <laughs> this feels real different from the last letter, by the way. Um this this feels like a situation where there's a lot of really weird unspoken assumptions uh, flying around here.
2: Yeah, I think this isn't about the father-in-law. This is about the husband. Mm-hmm. And I think I just think that's what it is. I mean, it's not about making sure your father-in-law gets a hobby or, you know, has something else to do on weekends or you, you know, if he all of a sudden had a p- packed social calendar, you still would have a husband who doesn't um respond when you're saying this is something that's impacting our family that's taking away our time together and it's your parent mm-hmm. you need to take the lead on this and he's not um so i would say that's that's where the conversation is it's it's uh, it's not good enough to say his wife is dead he, you know his your, your your husband's mother is dead too so i wonder what's going on there
1: mm mm-hmm. mhm Yeah, that's incredibly difficult and painful. And I'm sure there are like layers of grief and guilt. And he might feel like I don't get along with my dad, but my mom is gone. And this is like a way to honor her, even though like it does not bring any of us a lot of joy. Um, And so I just have to do this, Um, which I don't think is true. I don't think it's true. Um, I think like the question he asked you, you know, his wife is dead. What am I supposed to do? Well, a lot of things. Mm -hmm. Not have him over every weekend. Um I think it's like it's wonderful to comfort people who are grieving. It's it's really good to have as healthy a relationship with your parents as possible. Um I I don't think that if if one parent dies, that means you have to spend every weekend with the remaining parent forever. Um, you can actually say, Dad, we've got plans this weekend. I, I mean I just said it, so it's <laughs> it's possible to yeah, be said. <laughs> I'm sorry, I don't want to make light of this because I also want to acknowledge like this could be really painful for all of you, but um I think one of the things you should think about is, like, maybe your father-in-law doesn't love this any more than you guys do. I mean, maybe he's just super in his element, like, engaging in passive-aggressive fights all weekend. But, like, maybe he also kind of hates this arrangement and feels sort of trapped. And I think that you should, like, I think it's great to talk to your husband um, and and really push for, I want us to set some time aside where we do something with us and the kids that does not involve your father-in-law. And I want to do that pretty regularly. Like, we need to not do every weekend. And if you can't get him to join you on that, I think you and the kids should make other arrangements. Yeah,
2: that's what I was going to say. It's play date time.
1: Yep. Get out of the house.
2: Leave the the husband and the father home to work it out.
1: Yeah. I I don't think that should be your first option. Like, I think it'd be really good to get your husband on board. Um, Even if you could just agree to, like, a weekend a month to start with where you guys just have family time. Um, But, like, this can't be delightful for your kids either. Um, And I think you might find that if you don't spend so much time with your father-in-law, the time that you do spend together might actually be a little more enjoyable and you might actually, you know, connect and and not snap at one another so much. Um, Because I think that there is probably a happy medium in between like abandoning him to like a sad and solitary widowerhood versus letting him show up every Friday through Sunday and just fighting all the time.
2: Yeah. I would see about just organizing visits around an 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 activity as opposed to like the assumption of the hang. Like, what if you just said, "Father in law, we've got we're gonna let's can we do family dinner on Sunday evening? We're doing something on Saturday." Yeah, and then there's a destination and a time that's that's confined that you know that, and then also you your father in law knows that you're making time for him, Mm -hmm. but you're also not. I mean, just like that's family dynamics devolve when it's just like unstructured hang time. That is when we are our worst selves. Yes.
1: That's a really good point. You need something to focus on. (laughs) You need a start time. You need an end time. Yeah, you every every invitation for every event should have an end time written on it. <laughs> true. We should all know it, there when should be shit's invitations, done. to be clear. <laughs> yes. Yes. We like I, I believe that really strongly. Yeah. And I think that right now it sounds like what your husband's strategy is, is my dad can come over every weekend. I'm not going to work too hard to engage him. I'm going to kind of let my wife take the lead on that. And then when she says she's not enjoying it, I'm going to pull out the well, his wife is dead card. So. Things have to continue as they are. And I, I don't think you need to buy into that. And I think no. it'd be great if you could get him on your side. And if not, you need to make it clear, like, here's how much time, like, a month or on a given weekend, I'm willing to spend time with him. Um, I'm not going to do, you know, doors open from Friday at 5 p.m. till, like, Sunday night. Like, that needs to stop. Um, I, I don't think – any and like to frame it as, like, none of us is enjoying this. You and your father fight um the kids are like presumably feeling a little neglected um there's a real sense of aimlessness i don't want that i want the time we spend together to feel generally pleasant and like there's a point to it special yeah yeah that's not so wonderful at all <laughs> i'm so sorry i'm so sorry why don't you go ahead and read our next letter
2: please. i appreciated this letter cuz i am from west virginia mm. and this writer is from the state next door subject line trapped in kentucky i'm a gay man who's 43 years old and who has been in a 17 year old relationship with the same guy my problem is that my partner has bipolar disorder and has a tendency to move through life from one self-imposed crisis after the other i do love this person but we have not been intimate in over 14 years It stopped one day with him rejecting my romantic overtures and never resumed, exclamation point. Our relationship has gone from a romantic partnership in the very early year to one of my becoming his caretaker and roommate. A few years ago, my partner quit drinking, and while that's great for him, we never go out together or do anything that I don't plan myself. Oftentimes, I find myself sitting with him no matter where we are and feeling alone because we just don't have anything in common anymore. If I want to go out and socialize, something that I greatly enjoy as I'm a very social person, I have to do it alone." I do love my partner, but not romantically anymore. Over the past several years, I've found myself incredibly depressed because I feel as though I'm missing out on life and it's driven me to drink more than I normally would. And I've picked up the bad habit of smoking, which I really need to quit. I always envisioned myself to be with someone I could marry and settle down with in a happy, fully fulfilled relationship. I'm bored and completely checked out, but the problem is that my partner cannot support himself. I pay for everything. Can you please give me some advice on how to escape this entrapment?
1: Oh, man. This one is just devastating. Yeah. I feel like I have a suggestion for this person Uh, that I think would be really helpful to the both of you. And that suggestion is alimony. Mm. Um, I think this relationship is really over, really over. It's been over for a long time. Um, I really understand that there are elements to your partner's uh, life that are outside of his control. Um, It sounds like uh, his behavior has more to do with struggling to cope with a mental illness than any sort of deliberate cruelty or manipulation. Um, it doesn't sound like he is trying to trap you. so I, I I wouldn't say like he's a person you should just get away from as quickly as possible. Obviously, you have a longstanding connection. you feel you feel a real uh, responsibility towards his well-being, which I think is really meaningful. Um, But it also sounds like, uh, you know, you're not romantically involved and have not been for much longer than you ever were to begin with. Um, And like in a lot of ways, being his caretaker is, you know, creating a a not insignificant mental health crisis of your own. Um, And I think that you should separate. And because you've been together for a really long time, if it's feasible, talk about um, like what would it look like if you two separated and you continued to help him support himself for a period of time? Um, I I don't know. I I, I imagine that would involve consulting a lawyer. It sounds like you have a lot of goodwill towards him. So you you want to be helpful. Uh, You don't want to just like cut him off uh, because you're breaking up. Um, But I think you should break up. I think you should break up. And I think you should talk about um, how you can support him in a way that's meaningful and allows him to to focus on his own health. But I think you should stop living together. I think you should stop being in a relationship. I think you should focus on your own um, relationship with smoking and drinking and figuring out what kind of social life, what kind of romantic life you want to have independently of him. Uh, I think alimony is, is what needs to happen next here.
2: That's a really good suggestion. I was thinking he needs to go on a trip. <laughs>
1: <laughs> it could start with a trip. Like you do, I think you could use a vacation. You could use yeah. a vacation somewhere beautiful with interesting, attractive people who want to talk to you.
2: Yeah, cuz I think I think what's what I hear from the letters the relationship is over. I also feel like there's a lot you have a lot of resentment about the compromises you've made to stay in this relationship and I think because your life isn't how you imagined it right now, you're you blame that on your partner. Mm-hmm. Um and I feel like the thing that comes with Ending a relationship when the end has come is you have to take responsibility mm-hmm. for that and figuring out, do I want to leave Kentucky? Where would I go? What kind of environment do I want to live in? How much do I want to go out? How much do I want to drink? How much do I want to smoke? Um, who? What kind of sex life would be exciting to me right now at this point in my life? And those are all things I think that you can get to. Um, You you do have the first layer is like how can you not how can you how can you express love to this person who's been family to you for so long um, without without, um, you know, unnecessary feelings of of, uh, or just like letting the, the obligation go on too far. There's there's divorce for a reason. Right. And um, it can be structured in a way that that acknowledges that you have different earning capacities and that you have earned more for a long time. Um, And also thinking about if you're not there to take care of him as his caregiver, who will? What will that look like? Will it be someone that is a paid aide? Is it some other family? Just... You've got to work that out and you've got to, got to work that out, I think, in consultation with a, a lawyer, yeah. as Mallory suggested, is a good one.
1: And I think that makes a lot of sense, too, because you have to ask yourself both what would be good and kind and caring and compassionate to do for you and what are things I'm no longer willing and able to do? Because you, you mentioned in the letter that uh, he often moves from one crisis to another. So you know in advance there will be another, you know, your leaving will be a crisis for him. And it's possible that there will be more crises to come, and that there will be a real part of you that will feel like you have to fix it. Um, And I think to ask yourself, um, you know, what do I owe this person, uh, you know, and what do I not owe this person? And so to say, like, I I think, like, to help them with immediate physical needs, with mental health, if, like, they're in danger of harming themselves... Um, but to say like if they have a really big blow up with another member of their family, I don't need to wait in and fix that. If they have some sort of personal entanglement with somebody else that's really painful for them, I don't necessarily it's not necessarily helpful for me to go in and fix that again. Because you've been fixing that for so long, it will be hard for you, I think, to draw the line and say, I am leaving. Here are the things I'm willing to do to be helpful to you and here are the things that I just can no longer do because I, I, I want to be able to be open to a different kind of romantic relationship or a different kind of partner. Um, and so to, to resign from the boyfriend role um, and to ask, what do I owe you as a former partner who still cares about you a lot, but is not going to be your boyfriend again? Um, and you'll have to figure that out. I, I, I encourage therapy for that because this has been such an ongoing pattern. Um, I think therapy will be very helpful to you. I think take yourself on that trip. Um, even if it's just for a couple of days to somewhere close by, just a trip where you can like sleep by yourself and like take a long shower and eat a slow breakfast. Yeah. Flirt with someone cute. Um, get yourself a therapist. Even if you just go for a couple months, um, and just say like, here are my goals. My goals is to leave this partnership, to take care of myself, to prioritize my own needs, but also to be kind and compassionate to this person and to figure out how I can help them. Can you therapist help me achieve these goals? Um, So you have a real goal-oriented reason. You're getting in. You're going to get help accomplishing certain tasks. And then if you want to stop going to therapy, you can. Um, But to ask yourself, like, if you don't make a decision and you don't really work towards achieving it, it seems like you'll get another 17 years uh, where you find yourself doing things that you don't really want to be doing. And I don't want that for you. Um, And I think you can do that without kind of casting this partner to the side and saying, like you're responsible for my unhappiness or, or I must now punish you for the things that I've missed out on. Like, I don't think that that's the right response either.
2: Yeah. But I think you wrote the email because you are looking for permission and a strategy for exiting this relationship.
1: Yes. And I think you should. I think it's time. Good luck. Yes. Good luck to both of you. I think that there is a way to do this where the both of you are ultimately like better off and happier. I do. And I hope that that is what happens. All right. We're going to tackle a voicemail now that has to do with uh, breaking up with your sister.
0: I am particularly blessed to have a couple of sisters who we've all considered each other our best friends our whole lives. Um, And, you know, it's just a joke. Even at family gatherings, you know, we're joined at the hip. But for a long time, I've had a kind of nagging feeling that if I was actually the same age or in the same class or, you know, somehow a peer of my sister and not her sister, she wouldn't actually be friends with me. We've kind of talked about those kinds of issues and like why there are certain things about her that would mean that she wouldn't think of me as someone worthwhile to be friends with. Um, if we were just two people, um, but we always kind of accepted like each other's vices and bad things because we're sisters and we're friends and that's what you do. And everybody has bad things about them. But um, it's kind of become more and more clear that it's really a kind of abusive and one-sided relationship. Like if this was a friend or a significant other, like you would not be putting up with this kind of manipulation or lack of supportive behavior. How do you, break up with a friend who also happens to be your sister who you also happen to be living with oh man wow
2: here's my here's my assumption based on how you describe your relationship with your sister I have I have four sisters and I have older sisters and I have a younger sister. And it sounds like you are the younger with this particular sister, and she is used to bossing you around. And that has been the dynamic for a very, very long time. And she's not been very kind to you. Like, I was expecting you to say that you realized you wouldn't be friends with your sister. But the message was that your sister has said that to you repeatedly, that if we weren't related, we wouldn't be friends, which isn't very nice. Um, So I think you, you know, like sharing a living space with your sister is something that you've got to make a plan to get away from. And, um, you know, the thing with the thing with sisters is you're still going to have a relationship with her, but you got hopefully a long, long time to work it out. And uh, you've got to, I think part of what's hard about growing up, particularly with sisters, is that there's an assumption that you're going to make similar life choices together. And as you grow up and become your own people and differentiate, that can feel like a rejection. There can be all sorts of judgment from various phone calls flying from all sorts of family members. But you just got to go through it. And then once you have a little bit of distance, there might be parts of your sister that you appreciate Um, that you just can't right now because she makes you feel shitty
1: yeah man there was a lot of pain in that voice like it's clearly something that's been weighing on her this is just my read but kind of like you were intuiting that it sounds like maybe her sister has been a bit of a bully or or kind of put a lot of pressure on her my read on the situation is that the, the caller has not really challenged her sister a lot and has maybe felt like she kind of like moving in against her will, maybe sort of feels like there's this mythical sisterly closeness that we mm. have to adhere to. And if I push back or if I say no, um, then that will destroy our relationship. And and even the way she frames it is how do I break up with my sister? I don't know that you guys are at a point where you need to break up. I think that's a pretty drastic choice, but it sort of feels like, okay, either my sister and I live together and we're best friends and everything is okay, or we have to part we cannot be close i don't know how to say no to her or to push back or to disagree in a way that doesn't bring our entire dynamic crashing down all i know is that our relationship can be really close when i give in and when i find that unbearable i don't know how to be her sister and i do think that it is possible for you to be sisters without also being roommates and without also necessarily being best friends but i think right now as as you were saying anna is uh, like differentiation needs to happen <laughs> um And I think it's going to have to start with saying, I want to move out. And I think that's a really okay thing to say. I think to just say, I love you. You're fabulous. Living together is not working out for me. I'm not happy. I want to live on my own or I want to live with someone else. And like, you might get some pushback on that. Like, especially if this is kind of the first time you have really stood up to your sister or said that something's not working for you, she she might not know. She might think that you love all this stuff because... Again, that's just an assumption. It's possible that you've tried pushing back before and she shut it down. Um, but this is an opportunity for you to just say, here's what I want and I'm going to do it.
2: And I think the thing – it sounds like it's not just you and your sister and your family. It sounds like you've got a couple other mm. siblings. And the thing with being in a big family is the um, – the the <laughs> it's it's a clan. And when you create a little space with one member of the relationship – I would be prepared for feeling like there's some judgment coming from other members of the family, because in some, this is going to be interpreted by some as like a rejection of your family. And that's fine. Like, that's going to be a moment. And then you're going to feel more adult and grown up and that you can have a, a better relationship with boundaries with your family. Mm-hmm. But I know that, you know, in my family, all all of the sisters have had various <laughs> We all have our our phases of needing to create a little bit of space from the family. And when I haven't been the sister, it's painful because you're like, why are you rejecting our loving family? We are a close family. And that is part of our identity.
1: Yes. And a close family cannot fight. No. Cannot need to be apart oh, for a while. No. So if you want this, it must mean you don't really want to be a part of this family. And that's a hell of a guilt trip to lay on someone. Yeah. I hope that's not forthcoming. But if it is, I hope you can just know that's not what you're doing. And that's what happens in a lot of families. Yeah. So you're not alone. Yeah. And you, you might have to go through, like, <laughs> all I'm saying is I want to live somewhere else. I am not saying you're not my sister. I'm not saying I don't love you. I'm just acknowledging reality, which is that I love you. And sometimes you drive me crazy. And I want to live with somebody else. Um, And if her reaction that's really big, that's a bummer. And you might go, you know, you might go for a long time where things are really strained between you. I think the key thing to remember here is that like life is long, generally speaking. Um, Siblings are lifelong relationships. Um, So you're looking to play the long game here with your sister. Um, And it's not about like squelching down your feelings for an indefinite amount of time so that she can continue to get her way. Um, You have to say like, what do I need in order to be a person who's like reasonably happy throughout the day? And it sounds like right now that's not living with your sister. Like, I heard the pain in your voice. I don't think living with your sister is going to work out for you for much longer. And I think you need to just say, I want to move out. And if she tries to kind of be like, well, you have to give me an explanation that I think is is sufficient. You actually don't have to. You just have to give notice. Um, And you just have to say, this isn't working for me. And I love you, but I don't want to be your roommate. And that's like a complete sentence. And if she wants to like, go 20 rounds and be like, but why? But why? But why? Like, just remember, you don't actually have to engage. Um, and that it will be worth it. Um, I think if you if you don't do this now, um, there will be a bigger blow up further down the road, where you might do or say something um, purposely unforgivable. Hmm. I sure would. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, I'm thinking like, if I were in that situation, and I felt like anything short of like, get thee behind me Satan is not going to work and I'm going to end up getting cowed back into submission, I'm eventually going to do or say something that you will just never forgive to save myself. You know, Mm. I'll like chew off my own foot to get out of the bear trap. And I want you to just get out of the bear trap. Sorry, not that your sister is a bear trap. She's a human (laughs) being um, with a particular dynamic that you've both contributed to. But like the situation is a bear trap and you got to go and you got to go and it will feel so much better. Even, like, even if her reaction's terrible, even if she loses it, even if she yells at you, once it's out in the open, it will feel like such a relief for you to just name, like, I'm not happy. I don't like this. I don't want this to be our relationship. Um, and that hopefully with time and patience and some separation, you guys will be able to say, like, hey, that was actually really rough for both of us. Yeah. And I'm really sorry for, like, X, Y, and Z. And maybe you're sorry for X and Y. And um, maybe we can get lunch. And you know what? If you want just some... Hope for the future. My sister and I once got in a fight so big that she chased me out of the house without <laughs> my shoes on. And I spent the next three nights sleeping on my friend Hugo's couch. This was, I was probably 17 at the time. And she was recently a guest on the show. We're very close. We talk several times a week. We see each other several times a month. Uh, I love her dearly. So, You know, sibling relationships can often, not always, but can often weather really big fights yeah, um, and really big disagreements and really big blow ups. Um, Not that I encourage you to blow up at her, but just you can you two can go through the shit together. And and there's still a really good chance that there will be a relationship that you can preserve on the other side. Don't I don't encourage any of you to chase your siblings barefoot (laughs) out of the house all have a friend like Hugo, though. Uh, yeah, absolutely. He's the best. He brought me some Twizzlers, and he let me watch him play, like, volleyball video games until I got the gist of it and could join in. Um, <laughs> Anna, thank you so much for coming and being on the show. Thank you for having me. Uh, it, it was a, a sheer delight. Um, I encourage everyone who enjoyed today's episode to listen to her podcast, Death, Sex, and Money. Um, and, yeah, thank you again for coming and um, being so wise. Well, thank you for being wise. The alimony, that was good. And congratulations on having a child who can scoot backwards. Thank you. I have been thinking a lot about just general life advice because I feel like the last couple of episodes uh, we've been sort of opening and closing with uh, very nonspecific advice. Uh, And I realized that I've not yet shared my absolute favorite bundle of advice with the listeners of this show. Um, And that is the song Beautiful Ride from the John C. Riley film Walk Hard, which is uh, the greatest film of all time. It is an incredibly specific parody of basically two movies, Ray and Walk the Line. Um, So if you were just like desperate for a very specific satire of musical biopics about southern singers uh that's the film for you or if you just love uh john c Riley, but it's beautiful and pitch perfect and there's a song at the end that sort of sums up all the wisdom he's accumulated over the course of his storied life um and the chorus just goes it's about music flowers babies sharing the good times accepting your mortality traveling not just for business um and I just love that more than anything else in the world. I think it sums it all up beautifully. And just the way that John C. Riley says, traveling, not just for business, um, just really does it for me. So I strongly encourage you to go listen to that song if you haven't already, to watch the movie um, if you haven't yet gotten the chance. Um, just in general, do not sleep on John C. Riley. He's a genius and he looks like the prince of goblins. And I love him with my whole heart. And I try to live like that song every day. Um, don't just travel for business, you know? Or that's not really a problem many of us have. It's really more a problem if you're like a very famous singer whose career spans decades. But if that's your situation, you should remember not just to travel for business. Um, If it's not your situation, maybe just focus on the babies and flowers portion. That's all I got for you this week, everyone. Thanks for listening to Dear Prudence. Our producer is Casey Miner. Our theme music was composed by Robin Hilton. Steve Liktai is the executive producer of Slate Podcasts. And Andy Bowers is the chief content officer of Panoply. If you like this show, please go to iTunes and write us a review. Reviews help new listeners find the podcast, and then they ask us questions, and it goes on forever in a beautiful cycle. If you want me to answer your question, call me and leave a message at 401-371-DEAR, that's 3327, and you might hear your answer on an episode of the show. You don't have to use your real name or location, and at your request, we can even alter the sound of your voice. Keep it to 30 seconds or a minute, and send it to me at prudencepodcast at gmail.com. that I I have have lived a lifetime's worth worth of days Days.
2: finally Finally I I see see
1: the folly folly of of my ways ways. oh it's so good
0: so listen when I sing of the temptations of this world fancy cars and needles whiskey flesh and day till you die it's a beautiful ride